The following message from Pastor Kit Johnson comes to you from Life Point Baptist Church in Apple Valley, California, where we pray that God's Word is a real blessing to you. Then we can turn your Bibles to Romans 3, Romans chapter 3, and uh, taking the last couple weeks off from Romans, but we're going to jump back in this morning and look at verses 8 or 9, 9 through 18. Very, very important passage of Scripture here. Not the most uh, optimistic, happy passage of Scripture, but a really important one. Uh, Romans 3, beginning in verse 9. God's Word says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. They all have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. You know, the saying goes that ideas have consequences. And, um, and now we've all been bored at times with people going on forever about ideas of no consequence and uh, useless, irrelevant debate. And in fact, probably think that some people's spiritual gift is talking about useless information forever. And certainly, uh, some people are, are pretty bad about that. But ideas really do have consequences. They shape how you interpret the world. They shape your values and your priorities. Ideas shape your reactions to good things and bad things. And when there are bad things, ideas shape what you believe to be the solution to that problem. So, even if you get bored with ideas, ideas shape life. And they shape culture. And our text for this morning strongly affirms one of the most consequential ideas in all of the Bible. Now, now if we were to take a survey, what are the most consequential ideas in the Bible? I doubt many people would immediately think of the idea that comes up in this text. But it really is one of the most consequential ideas in Scripture. And that is the doctrine of total depravity. So specifically... The Bible here rejects the notion that people are born inherently good, or or even that people are born as a blank slate that can be shaped either for good or for bad, depending on their circumstances. No, instead, it teaches that we are born into the world under the dominion of sin and hostile to God. Now, I recognize that's not exactly a happy doctrine, is it? But, but it's very consequential for, the world, for a Christian worldview. Because just think about all the effects that this doctrine has on how we think about life. You know, it shapes how we share the gospel. How we do ministry as a church. You know, it puts us as well at odds with secular humanism and how we think about things like parenting and discipline. 
how we think about education, laws and law enforcement, politics, foreign policy, and all sorts of other things. You know, assumptions about total depravity were, were very significant in the shaping of our constitution as a nation. There's a lot of accountability built into it. And of course, as people move further and further away from a doctrine of total depravity, it is reshaping our modern society. And so the doctrine of depravity has major consequences for every area of life. And the passage we're in today is the most foundational passage in the Bible about this doctrine. And it's vitally important uh, for for what is said in the book of Romans. You, You can't understand Romans unless you understand Romans from the perspective of what Paul says about depravity. You can't understand the gospel without depravity. And as well, you can't understand how to minister to people and how to help people without a strong doctrine of depravity, and you can't understand how to live among people without it. So this is a very important passage, even if it's not the most heartwarming, you know, warm, fuzzy type of text. And the passage begins by detailing the characteristics of depravity. Now, now before we go on, remember where Paul is at in the broader argument of his book. So, so Paul here is not worried about politics, right? He's worried about something far more important, which is the, the, the need of every individual for salvation. And so way back in chapter 1, verse 18, he said that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and godliness of men. And so ever since then, he's been arguing for why it is that all people are born under the wrath of God and in need of salvation. But, but Paul rightly expected that, that when he said that everyone is condemned and everyone needs salvation, that religious people, and especially in his day and in his context, Jews, were going to strongly object. I don't need salvation. I'm a good person. I've lived a good life. I believe in God. I'm not condemned. I don't, I'm not deserving of hell. And so ever since chapter 2, verse 1, Paul has been arguing that the Jews are sinners just like the Gentiles and that everyone, everyone stands condemned before God and in need of salvation. There won't be any favorites at the judgment. No one's going to get a free pass. We all need Christ. And so chapter 3, verses 9 through 20 conclude Paul's argument that the Jews cannot be saved through the law and neither can anyone else. We all need salvation. So this passage really is the capstone of this first big discussion in Romans about a man's condemnation. And and verse 10 really sums up the point of, of this whole section well. Paul says, there is none righteous, not even one. So so the first characteristic of depravity is that depravity is universal. Now now remember again that that ever since chapter 2, verse 1, Paul has been confronting this Jewish assumption of privilege. So the Jews thought that because they were circumcised, because they had the law, because they were the chosen people of God, that God was just going to let them into heaven as a result. It's similar to how people today would say, well, I'm Christian. And all they mean by that is that their family has some loose identification with Christianity. And so so the Jews thought they had that, and they were privileged because of it. But but once again, Paul asks in verse 9 a very important question. What then? Are we, speaking of the Jews, better than they? 
Speaking of the Gentiles, that's a good question. Are we more righteous? Are we going to be accepted into heaven because of our righteousness? And how does he answer? He says, not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks, really the idea there is Gentiles, all people, all people are under sin. So we're all sinners. No no matter what privileges we have, no matter how good of a life we've lived. And notice how he drives that home in verses 10 through 12. Notice all the, the, the universal language. He says, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they've become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Now that, those verses, verses 10 through 12, they're a quotation from Psalm 14. And they couldn't be any clearer, could they? Everyone is a sinner. Now, a lot of parents, especially first-time parents of little kids, think that their little Johnny is the exception. My little Johnny's not a sinner. He's cute, he's perfect, he's precious in every way. But but Proverbs 22, verse 15, uh, has an important application of, 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 of this reality for parents that no matter what Disney might want to tell us or anyone else might want to tell us, Proverbs 22, verse 15 says, foolishness, not perfection, foolishness is bound up in the heart of a child and the rod of discipline will remove it far from us. So God tells us that we are all born into this world as rebels at heart. A foolishness, wickedness is who we are. And you won't parent well if you don't start with that fact. As precious as little Johnny may be, he is foolish and he is a sinner. And what is even more important is that you will not appreciate your need of the gospel, your need of Christ, unless you begin with this fact that you are a sinner and that all people are sinners as well. And you won't be able to minister to other people unless you begin there as well. So, so depravity is universal. And then the second characteristic of depravity is that it is enslaving. Now, this is one that is easy to miss in the passage, but verse 9 concludes by saying that all are under sin. Now, now when we think of sin, we, we oftentimes think purely in terms of evil actions, things that we do that are bad or things that we should do that we don't do, that, are, that, that we should do right that we don't do. But, but throughout uh, the New Testament, when, when this Greek, the word that's translated here, sin, hamartia, when it's used in the singular, it, it almost always refers not to individual actions of sin, but to sin as a power. And I think you see that that's confirmed, that Paul has in, what, that's, what Paul has in mind, when he says not just that we sin, but he says that we are under sin. And, and that, that idea that sin is a power that, that masters people is, is a really idea, important idea, particularly when we get to Romans chapters 6 and 7. So, so turn over to chapter 7 and just notice, uh, for example, what Paul says in verse 14. Verse 14 of Romans 7. And Paul says, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of flesh, and then notice he says, sold into bondage to sin. So I think this is really important. That, that sin, all right, is not just something that we do. It is a power that enslaves the unbeliever. So, so without Christ, 
You know, people don't just make mistakes. It's not just, I shouldn't have done that. Oops, I shouldn't have done that. The Bible says our problem goes much deeper than than the individual acts of sin that we commit. It, It teaches that apart from Christ, we are enslaved to sin. Now, now that does not mean that that the unsaved person never has any desire for righteousness or that they can't ever do anything good. So so Romans chapter 2, we we saw in verses 14 and 15 that, that God gives every person a conscience. And so everyone has some sense. We're born in this world with some sense of right and wrong. And and so that restrains people from doing sin oftentimes. God has also uh, given His Word. And and by means of of various various means, God restrains the the evil and the depravity of sinners and encourages righteousness. So sometimes unbelievers do very good and and even heroic things. But, But all of that does not change the fact that we are all born under sin's power. We are born dominated by by sin. And and the reality is, as the Bible is clear, that there is nothing a person can do in himself to to eradicate the slavery of sin. And on just a very practical note, this fact radically changes how we think about spiritual and moral transformation. How we grow people. So so it's true, for example, that, that discipline can root out some level of foolishness in a child's heart. But parents, don't ever forget that no matter how good of disciplinarian you are, no matter how well you structure your home, discipline and and your effort alone will never produce genuine godliness in the heart of a child who is dead in sin. The only thing that can produce genuine godliness is the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit. And so because of that, you should build good patterns into your, into your home and into your, your child's life as soon as possible. You know, thinking broadly, you know, as a culture, we, we want to have laws and enforce laws in such a way to restrain sin from being as bad as it could be. But, but let's never forget that the only hope of genuine spiritual transformation is the gospel. And that's crucial to parenting. It's crucial if you're trying to counsel someone through uh, some issue like you know, depression, substance abuse, whatever it might be. And it's crucial to how we think about society in general. You know, so, so the world, you know, the world's going to tell us that we've got all these problems and, and, and the solution is education or, or give people a new environment. You know, the environment is the reason people do bad things or, or, or give people some coping methods so, so they've got an answer to, to all this other stuff over here. Or, or give them some pills. Or, or just give them a hug. Just love each other. And, uh, and, and, and they believe that if we effectively use these other things, that since the heart of man is generally good, that we could fix problems and maybe even achieve world peace. Now, I want to be clear that, that all those things, they, they have a place at times in helping people. But God says that regeneration, God's Spirit changing the heart, is the only hope of real transformation. So so people don't just need a new coat of paint on a rusty old car. They need a new car, a new heart. And then the fourth or third characteristic of depravity is that depravity is blinding. So so look at what Paul says in in chapter 3, verse 11. He says, very simply, 
There is none who understands. Now, now the point of that statement is not that unbelievers are dumb or stupid. There's a lot of really smart unbelievers out there. And in fact, some of them are, are really, really know the Bible. I mean, there are, there are unbelievers out there who don't believe a word of the scriptures that probably know it way better than anyone in this room. And some of them have actually written some really useful commentaries, you know, telling us what the Bible says. But, but the issue is, is that while they know what it says up here, it, it, they don't see any application to them. It has not worked down to their hearts. And why is that? Isn't that just dumbfounding at times? You know, I mean, it's interesting as well just to think, you know, how, how a child can grow up in church, serve the sound of the gospel for years, and it never penetrates the heart. Why is that? Well, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4 say, and even if our gospel is veiled or, or covered over, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. So, so what Paul is saying there is that Satan, and by extension, the, the depravity of our own hearts, blinds the unbeliever so that he cannot see and he won't see apart from a work of God's grace in his heart. And you know, just on a practical note, that is so important to remember when you share the gospel. Yeah, because when you look at the New Testament, you can see that, that Jesus and the apostles, they, they did reason with people, right? They, they gave arguments as to why the Bible was true and why people should believe on Christ. And, and they compelled people to be saved. But, but they also understood that the only way anyone is born again is by the work of God's Spirit in their hearts. We can't save people. We cannot cause people to understand. And so, and so they always left room for God's Spirit to do what only He can do. So once again, parents, you should do everything in your power to point your kids to Christ. But don't ever forget that only God can save them. And you can't force them into salvation, no matter what you do. You know, the same goes for, for every other relationship. You know, we, 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 can, we, we should urge people to be saved. We should answer their questions. We should do the best we can to give a, a compelling case for the gospel. But we've got to remember that only God can save. And so we pray, right? As much as we share the gospel, that God would work in people's hearts. And then the fourth characteristic of depravity is that depravity is hostile to God. So verse 11 continues, There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. Now, now, the end of verse 11 is a statement that is hard for a lot of people to accept. That God says, there is none who seeks for God. So, so we want to believe that, that people are generally good, right? And, and that they want to know God. You know, that, that we want to believe that there's all these people all over the world who are seeking after God, and if they just heard the gospel, they'd be saved. That their will is, is to move towards Him. You know, as well, we've all known seemingly good people who, who don't believe the gospel, but, but man, by every account of what we can see, they, they, they have to be a good person. So, so God, though, says that they're not. And God says, very bluntly, there is none who seeks 
for God. I think we could put in parentheses, apart from a divine work of God's Spirit. So someone might be really religious, really moral. But, but you know, really, most people that are religious and moral, it, it's, it's not about seeking after God. You know, they want a, a form of religion, they want even a form of Christianity that really glorifies them. You know, where they're in charge and, and where they're doing what, what has to be done to, to reach God. And so it's all about them and about what they do and, and boasting in their good works. That's apparent in every legalistic religion. And so because of that, verse 12 says, all have turned aside. And the idea there is that there is the path to God and people turn aside. God, I don't want that. They go the opposite way. People are not running to him. They are running away from him. They turn their backs on him and on what the gospel demands for salvation. And so, because of that, we saw back in chapter 1 that the unbeliever will worship anything but the true God. Remember, he exchanges the worship of God for the creation of God. People are not running to God. They are running away from him because they are rebels at heart. And so because of that, verse 12 adds that they have become useless, meaning they're spiritually worthless because they refuse to truly honor the sovereign God of Scripture. And again, that, that hostility is so important to remember when you share the gospel. You know, Jesus said in John 6, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. So, so, No one can come in their own strength. The only way they can come is if God draws them to himself. And what's so encouraging about this verse is that God does draw them to himself. Because he says they will be raised up at the last day. So so the only hope for seeing anyone saved is that God in his grace removes the blindness of sin from their hearts. and, And he shows them the true glory of God. And when people see God as He is, they want Him. They want Him because He is good. And so God works through His grace in the gospel. And we ought to remember that it is a miracle anytime someone gets saved. Because when anytime someone gets saved, it is a resurrection from the dead. God takes people who are dead in sin and brings them to life. And of course, just on a a practical level, that means that we cannot manipulate people into getting saved. You know, we get the right music. You know, if we, you know, really, you know, give the right, you know, little, you know, emotional appeal or say all the right words, maybe we can get them to to believe on Jesus. You know, or, or reason people into genuine conversion. You know, we need to pray that God would do what only God can do. And we need to live in the power of the Spirit. Because we need God's strength in us if we're going to see people get saved. And then we need to set God's word in front of people. Because God works by His Spirit through the word, not through other things. And and, and when someone believes the gospel and they display genuine fruits of conversion, we just say to God be the glory. Because God did what only God can do. And the same goes if you're a believer for thinking back to your own conversion. You know, you know it's, it's good for us to remember often, you know, the, the song that, that we sang, All I Have is Christ. I once was lost in darkest night and thought I knew the way. And, and so, you know, we like to, you know, sometimes we can think, boy, 
you know, I've got it figured out. I found Jesus. And it wasn't that you found Jesus. It was that Jesus found you. And First John says that he loved you when you did not love him. You were hostile to God. You were running from God. And he came and he sought you. And he drew you to himself. And so chapter 3 verse 27 says, boasting is excluded. There is no room for us as Christians to boast in our salvation because we were hostile and God brought us to himself. Praise God. And then the fifth characteristic of depravity is that depravity is condemning. And so verses 10 through 12 uh, begin and end with two huge summary statements. So, So first, Paul says in verse 10, there is none righteous, no, not one. Now, now that word righteous is, is a really important word as we look at the book of Romans. So, so it's going to be factor, uh, factor throughout the book. And, and what Paul is going to say time and time again is that the only way that someone can be allowed into heaven is if they have perfect righteousness. So God doesn't accept 95%, 96%, 97%. No, God demands perfect righteousness. And so in light of that, This verse is absolutely devastating to my hope to save myself. Because what does God say? There is none righteous, not even one. And then verse 12 concludes the quotation by saying, there is none who does good. There is not even one. Now now again, the point there is not that unbelievers can't ever do anything good. Because they do. But no one truly has a good heart that loves the Lord with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and truly loves his neighbor as himself. You know, now, so, you know, everything we do, even the best things we do, are tainted with our depravity. We never have perfectly pure motives. There is no one who is good as God is good. So in some, verses 9 through 12, paint a dark picture of the natural man apart from God's grace. And God here forcefully denies the old heresy called Pelagianism, which is that we're born as a blank slate that can be shaped by our environment and education into either something good or something bad. No, God says that, that we are all born enslaved to sin. And so my biggest problem is not my environment, my lack of education, my chemical imbalance, or anything else like that. Now, that doesn't mean that, 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 that we ignore all those things and that those things can't factor into uh, some of the unfortunate things that happen in life. But God is very clear that your biggest problem is you. And it's the heart that you were born with. And so, fundamentally, I am not a victim. Fundamentally, I am a sinner and a rebel. So so if you're hoping that that somehow you can earn a place in heaven by your goodness, then I hope that you will see there is no hope of salvation in you. There is nothing you can do to earn the favor of God and to earn a place in heaven. The only hope of salvation is the gift of God's righteousness in Christ. And and Paul's going to talk about that a lot, uh, beginning in verse 21. So, So if you've never been saved, You've always thought, well, I'm a pretty good person. I'm a good Christian. You know, because I got baptized and I've done this thing and that thing. 
But understand very clearly, God says there is none righteous. Not even one, so that includes you. You need grace, and that grace is in Christ. And then, if you are saved, make sure that the doctrine of total depravity shapes how you see yourself, first and foremost, in relationship to God. You know, never wander far from the fact that I am just a sinner saved by grace. That this is me, apart from grace. And keep this doctrine in mind as you serve people. You know, don't ever forget that, that, that what we are at heart, and as well, it should affect how we pray for the lost, how we share the gospel. So, so those are five characteristics of depravity. And then notice that verses 13 through 17 reflect on two fruits of depravity. So, so really what Paul does here is in verses 10 through 12, he, makes, he, he states the fact that we are depraved sinners. And excuse me, in verses 13 through 17, he, he then gives proof of that. And the point of this section is not to say that every unbeliever does all these things or, or that every unbeliever is equally bad. No, what Paul does here is he takes just a broad look at human culture and human society and he points out two glaring evidences that people are not inherently good, that we are instead sinners. And the first evidence is evil speech. So he says in verses 13 and 14, their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. So, so, so he mentions there, so, so he begins by quoting Psalm 5, verse 9. And he says, their throat is an open grave. Now that's not a very pleasant picture, is it? I, you know, I grew up on a farm and there were a few times growing up where, where a cow would die like in the back of a pasture and we wouldn't find it for a few days because they're way back there. And when you find a dead animal that's been dead for five or six days in the heat of summer... It's not a pleasant sight, and it's not a pleasant smell either. And, and, and God here says that the speech of unbelievers is comparable to an open grave. And I think we can understand that's a fair comparison. I, you know, I went to public high school and spent a lot of time in locker rooms and in the back of school buses, listening to, to even teenage boys say all sorts of foul, disgusting, perverted things. I remember my, I spent my first year of seminary working at a gutter company. And, and those guys put my high school classmates to shame. They were absolutely disgusting and foul in their speech. And, and, and I feel for those of you, some of you guys, you work around that every day. You have to go to work every day and listen to guys just be absolutely foul and crude and nasty. And, and, and then verse 13 specifically mentions their deceit. He says their tongues keep deceiving. You know, isn't it amazing how shamelessly some people will lie and manipulate? They have no problem at all just staring at the face and telling a lie or, or being deceptive or manipulative with the truth to get what they want. And then notice the picture at the end of verse 13. This is another quotation he says, the poison of asps is under their lips. And, and that's really a picture of, of a cobra and, and the venom pockets that they have in the back of their throat. And so Paul, or God compares the speech of people to, to venom, snake venom, being spit out of the mouth of a snake. It's very appropriate. 
And then verse 14 uh, quotes from Psalm 10, verse 7. It says, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Now, so many people, they love to be miserable, right? I mean, they're not happy unless they're cranky. And they love to complain about how cranky they are and about all that's wrong. They're angry at the world and they express it with foul cursing of God and of other people. I think we've even reached a point in our culture where we, we glory in, in foul language as, as authentic self-expression. You know, so, so I mean, I've noticed this in the last couple of years, a shift. Like, you know, professional journalists you know, who used to never use foul language in their professional setting, or, or if they were quoting someone, they would leave out those words that were inappropriate. And now, you've got to include them. Because that's authentic self-expression. We glory in, in foul, disgusting speech. And, and therefore, I must add that a Christian's mouth should never smell like an open grave. Now, your morning breath might smell like an open grave, but your speech, your words, should never smell like a rotting, like a rotting animal. You know, and, and so Christians should be people who value truth and consistently speak words that build. Psalm 15, verse 4 says that God is pleased by the one who swears to his own hurt and does not change. So we should be people who are true to our word. People of integrity and truth and honesty, even if it's costly. As well, Philippians 2.14 says that complaining is sin. It's one thing to lament evil. And it's another thing to be a complainer. Complaining is sin. Philippians 4.4, 4, on the other hand, commands us to rejoice in the Lord always. And 1 Thessalonians 5.18 commands us, in everything give thanks. So Christians, we must choose joy in our speech. Choose joy. And, and I about can guarantee that if you choose joy in what you speak, your heart will almost certainly follow. Because you will lead your heart to the right place. So, so, so God is clear here, and we can see in the speech of people around us the evidence of depravity. And then the second uh, evidence or fruit of depravity is violence and destruction. So verses 15 through 17 go on, their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. So, so these verses are a quotation from Isaiah 59, uh, verses 7 and 8. And they also highlight the darkness of human civilization. So again, all right, verse 15 is not saying that every unbeliever is a murderer, right? Thankfully, the vast majority of people don't murder anyone. But murder happens in every culture. And human history is filled with bloody, violent wars that, that have caused terrible destruction and tragedy. And then consider as well, how much destruction and misery is all around us. You know, think about how common physical and sexual abuse are. Child abuse, child neglect, how nasty people can be. And folks, the evidence of depravity is everywhere in our culture. And therefore, the text, or the, the, this, uh, this section concludes, the path of peace they have not known. And take a look at a lot of families and workplaces. They're not a picture of unity and peace. There's all sorts of messy strife, backbiting and bitterness. 
Or, or think on a broader scale, you know, think back you know, over 100 years ago, it was said in, during the time of World War I that this was going to be the war to end all wars. Right? Did it happen? Of course not. You know, wars will not cease. Peace will not come until Christ comes again and fully eliminates sin. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that we don't pursue peace. It doesn't mean that we don't uh, use diplomacy, you know, thinking on a broad a national scale to try and avoid things like war. But, but we also have to always be realistic about the human condition. You know, the Bible, folks, is not optimistic about people. It is pessimistic about sinners apart from grace. And so that's why we need laws. And we need those laws to be enforced. Is because people are evil. And the gospel is the only hope of genuine change. And the return of Christ is the only hope for true world peace. And so this also means that changes um, how we should... Fel- and all this, of course, means that, that, that we as God's people should be different. You know, that, that God's people should not be plagued with, with this sort of strife and, and, and envy and misery because God has changed our hearts. So, so rise above this sort of nonsense in your marriage. Don't tolerate it. The same for your family. You know, let's always be careful as a church that, that this would not be what describes us. And we've been talking all year about how the fact that all people will know we are Christ's disciples by the fact that we love one another. Because love for one another is a supernatural work of grace that is not common among unbelievers. So, so verses 13 through 17 present two compelling fruits or, or evidences of total depravity. People are sinners, and the evidence of sin is overwhelming around us. And then finally, verse 18 describes the center of depravity. It says there, there is no fear of God before their eyes. Now this one is, is key. Because Proverbs 1, verse 7 says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. And the Bible everywhere assumes that that, that the fear of the Lord is the most basic foundation of all of life. You cannot process the world. You cannot live in the world rightly unless you begin with the fear of God. Because He's the creator of it all and He is the purpose of it all. And so that's why Romans 1 begins this section by condemning mankind fundamentally, first and foremost, for his refusal to honor and worship God as he deserves. There's nothing more foundational to life than the fear of God. So so once again here, when Paul says there is no fear of God before their eyes, he denies that common notion that unbelievers are seeking after God. And they want to know him as he really is. No. You know, they reject the knowledge of God. They refuse to fear Him, honor Him. You know, they refuse to repent of their sins and, and cast themselves on Christ because they want to be their own boss. They want to be in charge. And, and, so, and so that is the condition of man. We are not running towards Him. We, we refuse the true worship of God. Now, now we might have all sorts of, of copycat gods that might be even be really close to the true God. But all of man's copycats of the real God fall short of the submission, the worship, the reverence, 
that God truly demands. And so while we might tend to notice all the stuff in verses 13 through 17, a whole lot more, let's remember there's no greater condemnation Paul could give than verse 18. Isaiah 42, verse 8 says, I am the Lord, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. The first commandment of the Ten Commandments is what? It's about worship. And so fundamentally, the refusal to worship the Lord as he deserves is the most serious act of rebellion that man can commit. And on the positive side, there is nothing that pleases God more than a sincere heart of reverence, love, humility before God, and submission. And there's no greater gift that you can give to God than to honor Him as He is, to worship Him as He is, and to truly submit to His will. So, so Lord willing, next Sunday, we'll, we'll close out Paul's argument uh, for, for universal depravity by looking at verses 19 and 20. And, and then we're going to make... Uh, maybe the most significant transition in all of Scripture from verse 20 to 21, where Paul begins to talk about the hope of the gospel. But for, day, for today, notice that verses 9 through 18 provide quite the capstone of Paul's argument that he began in chapter 1, verse 18, about human sinfulness. And Paul demonstrates from the Old Testament, which would be very significant to the Jews in his audience, That God condemns the Jew alongside everyone else. We are all depraved sinners who are hopelessly condemned. There is none righteous. No, not one. Now, now maybe you're sitting there today. Maybe this is your first time in one of our services. You're like, wow, that is a really negative message. Who are these people? And and you might think, can't you give me something positive? Give me something to feel good about. And Lord willing, next Sunday, we're going to get there. And we're going to get there for a long time because Romans 3.21 through chapter 8, verse 39 explains the best news in all the world. But, but you will never appreciate the good news of the gospel. I mean, really appreciate the good news of the gospel unless you see it within the framework of the fact that you are a lost, depraved, hostile sinner in yourself. You have to embrace the bad news. You have to see who you really are before you will ever truly rest in Christ and know the joy of the gospel and the rest that comes in Him. So, so, so please, get there today. You don't have to wait till next week. So, so admit, if you've never done this before, that, that you are a sinner and a rebel against God. And you need to say to God, I have rebelled against your will. will. Not that everyone else does. God, I am a rebel. I am a sinner. I stand condemned. I deserve your wrath. And and, and if you do that, the Bible then is going to give the answer. And so we're going to talk next few weeks, probably next couple, well, a few months, uh, about the fact that that there is perfect righteousness and forgiveness in Christ. that, That He dealt with our sin on the cross and, and, he, and, and He gives to us the righteousness of, of God. And so you can be saved today, not because you do a bunch of good stuff, not because you turn over a new leaf, but because you simply cast yourself on Christ. And that is good news. But it is only good news because of the bad news. And so if you have never been saved, please talk with us today 
and make sure that you are born again. And if you are saved, don't ever stray far from remembering who you are apart from Christ. What you are in your natural state. You know, verses 9 through 18 are all of us, but for the mercy of God. So stay humble. You know, stay dependent on God's grace. Don't begin to think that you've got all this figured out and you're something special. You know, give thanks for God's mercy every day. I mean, every day of your life, you should say, thank you, God, for saving a sinner like me. Because I am a sinner and I am lost without you. And then rely on God's mercy. You know, if you're saved, you're not totally depraved anymore. You're a new creature in Christ. But there's still a sin nature there that you need to combat. And then let's boldly share the hope of the gospel with everyone around us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for the fact that you love us enough to share this message. And Lord, I pray for any who are here that do not yet know Christ as Savior, that today they would come to the end of themselves and trust in Christ. And Lord, for those of us who know you as Savior, I pray that we would, we would live in light of this truth. We would glory in the gospel of Christ. We would share it with others. And Father, I pray that, that you would work through us to, to cause people to be born again here in our town. God, we pray that you would give life to the dead, even among people that have grown up in our church and sat under the sound of the gospel their whole lives. And we pray to do the same for many, many people all around us who are lost in sin. And so work and do what you alone can do to save sinners and to glorify yourself in us. In Jesus' name, amen.